started not feeling well, not well at all, started having troubles breathing and you're having a heart attack. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to swallow up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Paul Gebrin is a veteran of the Royal Australian Air Force. He joined on April 24, 1990, and was medically discharged on April 25, 2017. Paul spoke to me about his deployments to Cambodia, South Sudan, and the Middle East, and the volunteer work he does today in the veterans community. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking over Zoom today with Paul Gebrin. Paul, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you having me. Paul, can you tell me a bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up? Grew up mainly in Sydney in the early years and teenage, a couple of years in Toowoomba, and then ended up on the Gold Coast where spent the rest of my uh, teenage years uh, through high school. I consider myself a, a Gold Coast lad and a Queenslander. So, yeah. Do you remember when your f- interest in the military first sort of was twigged or? Yeah, I think as a, as a young fella, like I was, I was always, you know, watching the old war movies that were on, you know, midday, the midday matinee. I had bucket loads of those little toy plastic army soldiers that I used to play with. And like all my mates at the time, we'd, we'd do that. And I do remember like early on, uh, my next door neighbour in Sydney, he was a World War II veteran and we used to get on really, really well with him and his wife to the point that we'd, you know, call him uncle and auntie. And if myself and my sister were sick and mum and dad were working, they'd look after us kind of thing and we'd go on holidays together. He didn't really talk too much about his, his World War II time. I do know that he did serve um, in the Defence of Australia up in Darwin uh, where he was wounded. But he was just a, just a really uh, nice, nice gentleman. And, yeah, that was kind of from there kind of piqued, piqued my interest. So familiarity with a veteran of our greatest generation, going to things like Anzac Day marches, bit of history in school, all those elements kind of coalesce together. And then when does that translate to you starting to think, you know what, I might have a career in the military and uh, Air Force then in particular? Yeah, I think it was just one of those things. I always knew I was going to join defence. Um, as, a, as a kid growing up, it was kind of like I was going to join the army. That was, that was the thing. And then when I got into that teenage you know, grade 10, 11, 12 kind of thing. I knew I didn't want to go to university. Kind of I was looking also at, you know, at that time, Queensland Police Force. And I think it was grade 11 or 12, um, one of my best mates, his brother, his older brother was actually in the Air Force and he was home on leave one year and we were, we were sitting around just chatting. He's like, what are you going to do next year? And I said, oh, i got to go join the Army. And he's like, well, don't be a dickhead. Join the Air Force, it's, you know. I'd look after you a lot better, this, that, and the other. And so I thought, oh, okay. Well, you know, self-recommendation or someone's recommendation seemed fair enough to me. So at the time, I applied for both the Queensland Police Force and the Air Force. And, um, yeah, Air Force got back to me first. And, yeah, pretty much as soon as I finished school, a couple of months later, I was off, off to recruiting. What's that old phrase? Army sleep under the stars, Navy navigate by the stars, Air Force stays five stars? Pretty much, yeah. So, you know, don't hate us for it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I must have picked the wrong occupation because, yeah, I spent a lot of time sleeping on the ground. Well, we'll get to that. So you join out of school April 1990, and I say April, but actually the day before Anzac Day and uh, Anzac Day or there around, um, we will see as a sort of recurring theme or motif of your military service but do you have any impressions or memories of joining up and those early days especially your training pretty much remember going to you know recruiting in brisbane signing a saying the pledge signing the dotted line so to speak and and then we'll you know literally on a bus to the airport and you know as sad as it is that was like my first plane ride 
was uh, from Brisbane to Adelaide to to undergo what a start to an Air Force career. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, so it was. Yeah, it was. You know, he met met a few other people from Brisbane on there. So you know, trying to form a few friendships. And like the first day we were there it was a it was a public holiday because it was Anzac Day, like our our first day kind of thing. So we we didn't do too much, and I think attended the, the ceremony that the unit had and. It was basically just, you know, sit around and wait, and then the next day uh, training kicked off. I don't know if that's fitting or bizarre to have you start on Anzac Day. Like, interesting choice. I've never heard that one before. Uh, Listeners of this podcast will be familiar with Army veterans discussing their early days and then getting into their initial employment training, starting to skill specialise and that kind of thing. What's the Air Force equivalent? You know, you start your basic training, then you get to trade training? Exactly. So you go through, uh, I think it's still the same, it's, that's for about 10 weeks of uh, initial recruit training where they basically, you know, teach you everything, you know, how to be Air Force, you know, marching, ceremonial, weapons training, field work, all that basic kind of stuff, how they, they want you to kind of operate as a recruit. Um, so three months of that culminates with a, you know, a graduation parade like most of the other services do. And, and then depending on what um, mustering or trade that you would uh, enter as would determine where you'd go off to your, um, you know, your trade training, so to speak. And uh, what path did you take? I was in logistics um, when I first, you know, recruiting. You know, everyone will say recruiting doesn't tell you, you know, <laughs> 100% of the truth at the time. So most of the, the jobs that I had applied for, they weren't available at the time. So it was just kind of like, I don't want to be in an office. I like working outdoors. So they said, oh, well, join up as a logistician or a supplier back then. So that's what I did. There was a broad range of roles that you could do, working with aircraft, refuelers, warehousing, you know, transport, all, all kinds of stuff. So it was kind of like, okay, get my foot in the door and, and, and take it from there and just see what happens, see what plays out. We're also here at the tail end of the long piece, not having been at war since Vietnam. This is 1990. In, in the 90s, we see a slew of operations that Australia is involved with, but it has been a peacetime military for a long time and did you feel that it was sort of reflected in the atmosphere and the level of uh, staffing and demand and um, activity in those early oh, days? Mate, for sure I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because the defense today is nothing like it was when, when I joined when I joined Air Force we had I think almost 23,000 members in the RAAF that was our uh, manning levels one of my first postings was to a base in Regent's Park in New South Wales. It's no longer there. I think it's now all townhouses, but it was one of the biggest stores depots in the Southern Hemisphere. And it was basically like the first couple of years of my service career was pretty mundane. It was just turn up to work, do your job, and literally just have a good time. Um, going to the pub at lunch and having a steak sandwich and two or three beers, then going back to work, it wasn't seen as a safety critical thing. It was just normality basically so um we most of the people lived on base a lot of the marities lived on base massive social kind of atmosphere as well so it was just basically like doing a normal job but you're in, in uniform and you're, and you're part of a bigger organization at that stage so yeah quite different to, to what it turned out and we obviously there's the First Gulf War and we have deployments for Somalia, Rwanda and all that drags across the 90s. Get, and then we get towards the latter part, Bougainville, Timor. Is there a point that sharply changes this kind of atmosphere and attitude or does it like sharply pivot around Timor, for example, or is it a gradual pulling up your bootstraps, so to speak, as things gear up a little? It was a gradual thing, like looking at about 93, 94, maybe a bit earlier, there was a there was a political shift where defence was under, un, undergoing, I think it was called the Defence Review Program. A lot of the um, like services like Army, Air Force, they were looking at those roles that they could literally contract out. And so over a period of a couple of years, we went from a force of, say, 23,500, reduced down to about 13,000 members, maybe a little bit less. So we lost things like transport drivers, cooks, stewards, quite a few other things. That Air Force lost, Army lost some of the, those capabilities as well. But as you know, and most of your listeners will know, uh, when you're in the Army, you're a soldier first, you're a, a tradie or whatever second. Um, Air Force is a little bit differently. You know, your main role is to keep aircraft flying, keep aircraft supported, keep airfields open. So we went from quite a, a large number of people doing 
a little to quite a few number of people doing a lot that basically shifted around probably you could see it when the the review was coming through about 96 97 there was a shift as you said Bougainville at that time around that time I was in Townsville based in Townsville working at air movements there and it was non-stop we had one team working and there was periods there where we were going eight, nine weeks without a day off, seven days a week, just seeing in aircraft, aircraft in, aircraft out. And that went through like the second um, deployment to the Gulf. And uh, I think it was Irian Jaira and Bougainville that was going on over there. So we we're supporting that a great deal as well. Let's talk about your experiences specifically. Uh, you become an instructor. You do that for a few years throughout the 90s. And you are an instructor at the recruit school when... Timor kicks off. So can you remember uh, that time period? It was basically my second tour as an instructor. In 94, I applied, went through selection, did the course, got through, did my first, like 95, 96 was my first tour at 1RTU as an instructor, went uh, post to Townsville, 18 months, and then then went back again to 1RTU, I think at about 90, 99, I think. Yeah, so the, the, the tempo had um, shifted a little bit. Timor hadn't been declared at that stage. There was a few things going on and um, when, when Timor did kick off, you could really see like, there was a, an urgency in recruitment. The trades that we lost a few years prior, they were now screaming for because we no longer had uniformed chippies, electricians, uh, cooks, all that kind of stuff that Timor needed, we didn't have. So there was a number of courses there that I you know, put through, the recruits had come in you'd see what kind of trade they were and you'd be like listen you know fairly guaranteed since you leave here you've been a qualified whatever you're going straight to Timor there was a number of uh, courses that we put through specifically just to get those numbers up to in support of so you see this increase in tempo shall we say and then it's not long after that that of course the world changes with the September 11 terror attacks with 9-11 and then looking over the previous few years of your service ramping up as well, how does that sort of shape your perspective on your career? Your career you've had for just over a decade by that point in terms of you joined a peacetime military. Now it's very operational. What's your sort of thoughts and feelings about that? Is it gratifying to be part of something that's active and doing something? Is it um, you know, a bit concerning that you uh, signed up for something different and it's now entering this kind of space, uh, talk us through your mindset at that era and if you have a particular memory of 9-11. It's basically what I joined up to do. And, yeah, it had taken a, literally a decade for an opportunity for a deployment to arise kind of thing. And, and when it did, I was at a training unit and we were basically told once Timor kicked off, anyone at a training unit will not be deployed. Your role is to train these people to go. It was exciting that we're getting involved in something. It's kind of like, you know, training to play rugby league and never getting to play first grade. You're always, you know, playing the trial matches and all that sort of stuff. You don't get to go on the first grade. And that's a lot of us saw a team all like that. We were, we were literally trying to work out who we have to pay to get on one of these deployments um, in 99 and that. Um, but it was just, if I remember rightly, it was, I think there was a start of a major exercise. There was a lot of people in motion going to the various exercise areas like in Darwin, up north, Weeper, that kind of thing, that literally on route to those exercise areas, they got told, no, nah, this exercise is now turned into operation such and such, and you guys will be going to Timor. And that's how it kind of ramped out for, for some of those um, units or those members that, that got the opportunity in 99 uh, to, to go to Timor. Yeah, so it was like, pretty exciting. Um a sense of missing out as well. That was wrong place, wrong time. And so from there, it was kind of, you'd work out, yeah, this is going to go on for a bit. So you'd kind of try and work out where my next pacing would be, what would give me the best opportunity, what unit do I need to get to try and get on a on a, on a trip overseas. But, but in saying that, where I was at the recruit training school, it gave me a lot of opportunities to do a lot of training that I necessarily would not have done in my normal role. So I was literally qualified on every weapon system that we had from pistol up to Mag 58. I had range qualifications. I was doing marksmanship courses, a small arms coaching course, did the night fighting equipment, train the trainer, maintainer course. So I had all these other little skill sets that I thought, well, these would be good opportunities 
to get myself trained up that maybe in future they'll come in handy. And as it turns out, they did. And tell me, Paul, about your memory of 9-11. I remember it quite vividly, actually. It was, I was still in Adelaide at the recruit training unit and it's coming off a break, you know, into the office, the TV was going. And some of the, the guys and girls were saying, oh, you know, there's a, a plane that just flew into one of the World Trade Centres. And I thought, it's a bit unusual, you know, a plane just doesn't fly into like one of these tall buildings that doesn't seem right. And then as we're still watching the broadcast, we could see the second plane coming and it's just like, see, you know, crash into the second tower. It's like, holy shit, this doesn't seem right. You know, it's... To me, I was just like, you know, a terrorist attack. It's, it was To me, it seemed like it was on purpose. You know, you just don't accidentally fly these machines with all their navigational aids and that accidentally into a tower. So, um, yeah, we just started talking about that and we just thought, well, there's going to be there's going to be ramifications from this. And you see the ramifications of that unfold over the next couple of years and at that point it eventuates you get to follow up on that desire to play that first grade footy match shall we say where in 2003 on anzac day you deploy to iraq and besides special forces you're among the first boots on the ground can you tell me more about what that deployment was what role you were in and just the experience and anticipation of deploying not just anywhere but to the middle east in particular it was one of those things like i'd left Edinburgh in 2001 and got posted back to Townsville and I was I think one of the roles there was road transport officer at the time was one of those jobs and towards the end of 2002 um, an opportunity came up at one of the um, it was a headquarter units so I managed to swap postings with another guy and I had another friend of mine that was working at the unit and he said, like, you'd really enjoy this kind of work, and which I did. So as a, at the end of 2002, got into, it was called Headquarters 395, uh, Expeditionary Combat Support Wing. And what we did in there in the S4 cell was literally plan out a lot of the exercises Anything that was going on with a number of our expeditionary units, we would be coordinating, sending off orders, task orders, planning that kind of thing. And it was kind of the start of 2003. You could see the build-up, you know, back into 2002. You could see the build-up as well. You know, we're building up. Um, America was, you know, sending forces. You know, the coalition was sending forces into the Middle East to, to stage so on and so forth. And I. I think it was about the 20th of March, 2003, was when the first um, bombs dropped in Iraq. And I remember that because I was, I was watching it on TV and I got a sense of, like, anticipation with that as well. And I remember it was on a Sunday there, I was duty officer for the day, so it was one of those duties where you had to stay on base, you know, waiting for people to lock themselves out of their room, go open them, that kind of thing. I get a phone call from my senior and he's like, mate, what are you doing? I said, oh. Like, I'm on duty officer today. He's, yeah, yeah, I know that. But are you busy? I went, no. And he goes, you want to come up to work? You know, the wing commander's in, something's going on. Okay, no drama. So I go up to the unit and we go into the uh, wing commander's office. He's the operational wing commander. And he's like, look, can't tell you too much. Everything's fluid. But I want you to start working on putting together what it would look like for a small number of people to go into an area and we're looking at, 7, 14, and 21-day AVP. Uh, that's operational vi viability period, basically. If you can dump people into an austere environment, what gear they need, food, water, ammunition, all that sort of stuff to be self-sustainable for that period of time. And so we started working on that, and it was kind of like, you know, what's going on, what's going on? It's like, I think we're sending a contingent over to Iraq. And it was just like, okay, so... I was part of the outside planning team for that, working on the logistics of it. And as you do with, with most planning elements, it's a little bit compartmentalised. So you've got your, your big planning team and then you break into smaller, smaller planning teams that do a lot of stuff behind closed doors, getting the latest intel. Uh, this, whole, this whole mission was extremely fluid from, if you look at the 20th of March and we deployed on Anzac Day, which was the 25th of April. So it was like four weeks of just hectic stuff where we were, we were organising and I didn't know at that stage if I was on it. It was just kind of like every day I'd go to one of my friends who was in the inner compartment and say, mate, get me on this, get me on this. And then one day I was working on um, something, uh, one of the logistics um, aspects of it and the S3 rings me 
and says, Paul, go through, what, what qualifications do you have? So I, I rattled off like, well, weapons, this, that, night fighting, so on, so on and so forth. Because at that time, we weren't going to be sending in a, a force protection element or man capped to a certain number of um, elements that we could send in. And he's like, yep, okay, thanks, and hung up. I thought, oh, okay. And then that afternoon, we're going to deliver a, a briefing to the group captain. And as I was walking down the corridor, I ran into the wing commander again. He's like, hey, Paul, you got your bags packed? And I went, oh, you know, don't be fucking with me, sir. Like, you're serious? And he goes, yeah, mate, you're on it. So start getting your shit sorted. And I was just like, okay. And I don't think I slept for, you know, the, <laughs> the two or three weeks leading up to the deployment date. Every day, like hour by hour, things were changing. What we needed, um, MBCD threat, what vehicles we were going to take over. Originally, we were just going to take white fleet vehicles like Toyota Land Cruisers and stuff. That changed within 24 hours because we were getting intel back that on the airfield, they, like the Yanks were shooting those vehicles up because they thought there were militia in it. So we had to change that whole suite, of, that whole packet and, and go get green fleet like Unimogs, 110s, um, Gators, whatever we get our hands on at the time, we, we get it on. And all the while, we're also trying to force prep ourselves and these other people that were coming in to get ready to step off overseas. We didn't know how long we were going for and we didn't exactly know where we were going. We just got told, be prepared for a six-month deployment. You might be going into uh, Baghdad International Airport. You could be going to Ballard Airport and uh, running air traffic control and combat support from those areas. So it was pretty hard to prepare the family because, you know, you just didn't know, like, I was getting to work at maybe 5, 5.30 every morning leading up and getting home 7.30, 8 o'clock, you know, maybe later each evening just going through the whole planning stuff and then getting your own personal gear ready for it as well. I remember the, the night we were stepping off, we had to report to air movements in Townsville at like 2 o'clock in the morning. I got home, I think, at about 8.30, 9 o'clock that night from work, still putting in last-minute stuff to go on the push. And I know one of the one or two of the other lads that were deploying with me were also part of the headquarters and planning team. One of those lads didn't get home till midnight, literally just grabbed his kit, kissed his wife on the forehead and stepped back out the door and and uh, you know, back to the airbase to get ready to to push off. So the intense preparations are done. Tell me when you're actually on the ground in Iraq, what the experiences are like there, both an overview of the work you're doing and what ends up occurring. And if there are any particular anecdotes that stand out to you? We didn't know how long we were going for. So the initial concept was basically get on a herc out of Townsville and we're just going to go fly straight to Iraq, offload there, secure whatever we have to secure, and then come daylight we, we go off. Now, basically, the herc flight from Townsville to it's like 36 hours, so there was a number of stops along the way. So we left Townsville about four in the morning. Our first stop was Port Hedland, refuel. Um, not much change to the mission at that stage. We're still pushing straight in, in country. Um, refuel, left, got to Cocos Islands for another refuel. At that time, we started getting a little bit of word back that our insertion method was going to change a little bit and that we might be going to another base in the Middle East where we'll deplane and then look at chalking ourselves in. So from there... From Cape Signs, we end up getting the T8 to Diego Garcia. We land there at about midnight for another refuel. And by that stage, yeah, things have changed. We're no longer going straight into Iraq. We're going to go to another base in one of the other uh, Middle Eastern countries and uh, deplane and, and then work out where we're going to insert from there. Diego Garcia, it's a base I've been to about a dozen times throughout my whole deployments, but I've never seen it in daylight hours. I've only ever landed like at midnight, one in the morning, refuel, got one of those dirty water hot dogs from the canteen and a Coke and, and, and away we go. So we end up getting into Qatar uh, early morning after a 36-hour bump on a Herc, which if you've ever been on a Herc, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty uncomfortable. But we, we managed it and uh, from there we just started working about how and where we're going into Iraq and how we're going to get there. So basically we'll obviously going to use coalition assets. So we just chilled out for about 24, 36 hours, um, resting up from the flight over, and then we started working our packets into um, getting into uh, Baghdad International Airport. I think I was on a, maybe the second or third plane going in over the days. So I remember it was going on a, like a, a Yank C-130, which was totally clean skin, 
inside, just a few seats, had all your gear there. And basically not much was said. You just got on the plane, took off, and then like even without no warning, basically we just started spiralling in and the loadmaster on the time was just giving you the like the gestures to, you know, get your gear on, get your gear ready and we're going to be landing. And literally it was a tack landing, ramp drop, we run off and the, the Herc took off again and we basically sat in one of the, the buildings at the side of the airport there, ones that had been bombed, bombed out till daylight. And one of our element come over from the, the tower with a with a vehicle or two and picked us up and then and then took us back back over to where we we're going to be staying, which was basically going to be home for the next you know four and a half five months, which was the uh, air traffic control tower at uh, Baghdad International Airport. And when all this is occurring, or when you look back later, because you're probably just distracted by everything that's unfolding at the time, how do you feel? Are you feeling like this is cool, or this is what I signed up for, or oh my god, this is happening? What's going through your mind? Of course, there's an element of nerves there because no one likes the unknown. You didn't know what to expect. You didn't know what you were going into. But when I look back on it, it was exactly the deployment, what I thought a deployment should be and I wanted it to be. And that was basically just going in with your pack on your back, your webbing, your rifle, whatever you, you got in that backpack. That's what you got to sustain yourself with and going into a totally austere environment. That's what I pictured a deployment to be in, and that's what I was. That's what it was, and I think I was extremely lucky to get one of those deployments. It's something that I'll always have. Um, when you look back, and I went back to Iraq, you know, a few years after, and it was totally different, totally different. So I'm really, uh, you know, proud of that fact that I, you know, got one of those deployments in, kind of thing. Um, that were that was environmentally hard. It was personally hard, and you know, it, um, it was uh, situationally hard as well. You mentioned the toll that's taking on family there. When did you meet your wife and start a family? And was she also in the service herself or doing other work? Pamela, I met her at um, Two Esteem, one of our first first postings back in the early 90s. And you know, we got married. She's also a serving member. So she's still serving today as a reservist. So, yeah, we got married back in 95 and got now two boys or two, now two young adults off, off doing their own thing kind of thing so um and she has her own service story as well i think she was deployed on operation anode over the solomon islands in i think 2004 a couple of the you know 38 squadron they were deployed to like uh, cyclone larry when it come through up to innisfail they deployed up there to help with the cleanup that sort of thing so it's kind of a bit easier because you kind of knew what was was happening like with each other you didn't have to explain she kind of knew and and Vice versa, like, it, yeah, it was just to be expected. Um, although it might seem difficult, both having serving members in defence, both of the same mustering, same trade, but it kind of made things a little bit easier because there was nothing too unexpected. You didn't have to explain stuff too much. I remember back in, was it the Boxing Day tsunami at the end of 2004, I think it was? Pam, she'd just gotten back from Op Anode, I think, a few months beforehand. And we'd spent Christmas at home and we were watching on TV on Boxing Day, saw the tsunamis happen. And just watching it, you knew, kind of had an inkling of what was, was going down. Just from watching the initial reports, like within 30 minutes, you know, the phone rings, it's her squadron. She's like, oh, we're on 24 hours notice to move. I've got to go into work. I said, okay, babe, no dramas. I'll, I'll look out. The boys are like toddlers. So I said, yep, no dramas, I've got the lads. And she's getting ready to go into work. And like 15 minutes later, my phone rings. And it's the squadron leader from 395, a unit which I was posting out of. And he's like, Paul, I know technically you're posted, but technically you belong to us until like the 14th of January to, you know, next year. And he said, mate, you're the only loggy in area. I need you to come in. I said, look, well, I can do that, sir, no dramas. I said... Wife's just been called in the 38. I've got to bring, you know, we've got to bring the boys in. And he's like, fine, do what you need to do. So, so I've gone into like the ops room. It's one of those rooms where, you know, you need like two separate passcodes. You get through two different doors and, you know, this, that and the other. They go into the ops room. And there's myself, there's a, a group captain and the, and the squadron leader and me and my two young sons in tow. I've got, got their colouring in pencils and stuff grab them a little bit of paper and say, mate, sit in the corner, draw us a picture. And we started working, just uh, organising the, 
the efforts around the, the response to that um, tsunami, it, um, a lot of our elements were scattered across Australia. So we're just pulling in whoever was upright and breathing on base at the time. They were just getting told you're going over to, to provide a support element to this. Um, the same thing that was happening with the wife, like every hour we'd just ring up and say, hey, I've had the boys for an hour, your turn to take them. So we just, you know, go out the back, swap the lads over. And for, for that day, that initial period, it was just the boys were just bouncing from the ops room to another ops room over another unit because uh, that's what we had to do. We had no one that could look after them, so we had to, had to bring them into work. And I suppose, as we were discussing earlier, when you get home from that deployment, you can go and debrief with your wife, so to speak, in that although she's not had the same experiences exactly, there's a strong level of understanding there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, she was at a unit. They had personnel over in other areas that were getting deployed and coming back. So there was already an understanding, of a picture of what was going on over there. First month in country, we had no comms. Basically, we had a sat phone and trying to chase a, a signal to have a conversation it was not cool um, kind of thing. So for the first four or five weeks, I think I spoke to the wife once. Um, the main information she was getting was from our opso back at the unit who would just ring her up and say, hey, look, Paul's fine, everything's going okay over there, you know, nothing to worry about. Then once we started getting out, getting into the groove of what we're doing over there, basically we started getting comms set up, uh, phone lines, all that kind of things we take for granted now, like FaceTime, you know, it's people taking mobile phones. We didn't have that back then. It was getting those uh, dial-up phones that you could just pick up and, and make a phone call back home. The only internet we had was, I think it was uh, an, on the Nippernet, so it was through the USAF. And the only laptop for that was at the top of the air traffic control tower, which the elevator was didn't work at the best of times. Or you, you know, if you're helping the elevators, they guarantee you're going to get to the top. You might be stuck there for a few hours. So literally, you'd hump it like 17 or 18 flights of stairs just to, to log on to a Hotmail account. You had a 30 minute window, and the dial up might take you 25 minutes just to to log on. And you got like two or three minutes to check email, send an email, log off for the next person. You know, a lot of letters, you know, mail day was always a bonus. I think anyone that's been deployed knows that when someone says the mail's in, you get a sense of, oh, yeah, you know, you get something from home. And that was one of those deployments that we were on pretty much like rations for the full duration of that deployment. So after a while, eating MREs got a little bit boring and you kind of relied on your support packages from home. And if you got to contact anyone, they'd be like, what do you want to send us? And it was like, just send me food. I don't care what it is, just send food. So like tin tuna and crackers was was the go. So you'd get like parcels and that, and then you'd make up like little, have like little feasts and that. Everyone would bring whatever they got sent from home and you'd have like a big smorgasbord of, of whatever. I mean, eventually it goes into a steady state. I think they end up getting Hungry Jacks or something opened up on the other side of the airbase. But the only downside to that was you'd line up for like four hours just to get there, grab the food, go back, you'd eat it, and then like 20 minutes later, you run for the toilet because your body just wasn't used to, you know, processing that food. So a bit of a novelty. The Air Force certainly keeps you busy with a variety of deployments. You have this Iraq deployment. You've mentioned the Boxing Day tsunami and the tactical level planning required there. And then on a similar vein, in 2005, uh, in Townsville, assisting Cyclone Larry cleanup. So there's... Uh, Good variety there of protecting the country's interests overseas and then as well as that disaster relief both to our neighbours and at home. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like back then, it probably wasn't as well known as it is right now compared to the, like, you look at the last couple of years that we've just gone through and the amount of ADF support to the like, civilian community has been absolutely through the roof. It's put the ADF at the forefront of people's minds, whereas kind of back then, if there was a cyclone or if there was a natural disaster, you'd very rarely hear of ADF elements that would go and support, but they were always there. When Larry come through, a lot of the damage was done further north. So from my perspective, it was, it was fairly minimal, but for my wife, the unit she was at, um, 38 Squadron working with the Caribous, they deployed a couple of Caribous to Innisfail Airfield where they were flying in, people in and out, food, water, 
kind of all that sort of thing. So basically the help that I was providing in my role was just basically transportation, helping to keep, you know, RAF-based towns all open as part of a greater effort. Then across 2007 to 2014, you have a variety of roles and that's a seven, eight year window there I've just glossed over, but it's also hitting your 20 year mark of service in the Defence Force, which is a remarkable achievement in its own right. Is there any sort of particular highlight role um, from that period, as well as just general reflections of you've been in the job 20 years and still going? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think once you hit the 20 years, you get your shell back, so they, they call it, they call it crusty or whatever. But um, yeah, it was a period there, 2006, got another opportunity to go overseas, and that was to Cambodia as part of a training team. I think the ADF Warfare Centre in Newcastle was their turn to run a United Nations Staff Officer course. And this was right at the start where Sudan was first kicking off. And the Royal Cambodian Armed Forces, it was like their first UN deployment or as part of a UN group to go to Cambodia. And I was lucky enough to, to get one of the spots to go over as part of the training team to help the RCAF element basically train up on how to operate UN vehicles to UN standards. So that was operating four-wheel drives in difficult terrain, how to you know, negotiate obstacles if they get stuck, how to extricate themselves. Uh, someone was actually trying to teach some of these guys how to drive manuals from not having driven at all like no vehicle experience at all. And then you're trying to what use your hands to show clutch control and how to manage yes. that. Oh, yeah, wow. so there was a few few funny moments coming down hills where it was kind of like they put the clutch in and you go skating down. And but we worked out our hand signals and they knew from the, the, the picture voice um, when, they were, <laughs> when they were doing good or not. So it was, um, it was, it was an eye-opening experience. It was a good experience. Um, particularly looking at the background, the history of that country, who we were helping train up for, for these people to go over and uh, be part of a UN effort in another country. So that was a, that was a uh, really good opportunity. I look back on fondly and, and really enjoyed that, that couple of weeks over there. Didn't work too hard, but uh, got an appreciation of uh, what Cambodia was like. So it was pretty good. Yeah, so that was the start of 2006. I got back from Cambodia and it was like a month later, I got a phone call from the deployment cell and air command and they said, oh, you've come across an expression of interest that you put in for a deployment, so on and so forth. And I'm like, I think I'll put that in like two or three years. I'd totally forgotten about it. The person was telling me about, oh, we're looking for someone to go on a deployment mid-year, so on and so forth, and they're trying to tell me about it and it's kind of like, and I'm thinking to myself, Deployments are still fairly new, so I couldn't understand why they were having to ring to look for people to go on one. But then the, the more I asked, the more questions I asked, like towards the back end of the conversation, they finally said, oh, and the, the deployment will be with the Army. And I went, ah, okay. So that's why no one wants to go on this. That's why you're ringing around looking at fingers. And they're like, yeah. And I said, look, give me a few days. Let me think about it kind of thing. I'll speak to the wife and see what she reckons. So I went back and then spoke to Pam and said, oh, look, another opportunity to come up. So I think we we're at that time too, like we're trying to have another baby as well. So that, that would be our third baby at the time. Um, went back and said, yeah, well, I'll take it. It's an opportunity. It's something different. I'll, I'll go over. So I rang, rang your command back and said, yeah, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go do this deployment, you know, with the army. It, it was one of the local units too from Labrack, so that wasn't too bad. As it turned out, a group of people I deployed with are absolutely brilliant. We had, we had an absolutely awesome crew um, that we went over, over with, we forced prep with, and we ended up doing, I think, just over seven months in country. In Kuwait was where we were based, basically uh, running the force-level uh, logistics asset out of Kuwait. Um, my role there was, was pretty unique. I had the opportunity to do a, a fair bit of travelling, so I was forever bouncing in and out from Kuwait back to Iraq, backwards and forwards. Did that a few times and then I got to the stage where, you know, my offsider could run the trips and then uh, any of the lads or any of the ladies just wanted to get out of Kuwait for a few days, I'd send them as well. They'd go over. 
and do what they had to do and, and kind of come back. So, yeah, it was, it was quite funny. It was one of those deployments where you're at a fixed base. There was no real any uh, sort of like physical threats there, car, you know, car accidents with a big one, driving in and out of Kuwait City doing procurement runs and that. Let's jump ahead, Paul, to 2015 when you deployed yeah. to South Sudan as a UN staff officer. Can you tell me about what that role was and the summary of that deployment, including its rather dramatic ending, shall we say? And as you said, like 2007, 2000, there's a long time between drinks, but that was a choice that we'd made as a family. Like we wouldn't, wouldn't go looking for deployments. If we got asked to go, we'd go. 2014, uh, as most married serving member couples do, like we have to go married, separated to take a posting at Air Command in Glenbrook. Pam had to discharge from the permanent Air Force to stay back here in Townsville to let the boys go through their like senior years of schooling um, and she was just picking up reserve days. So in 2014, she was in Townsville with the boys uh, and I posted to Sydney to take up what we call um, married unaccompanied, so to speak, working out of uh, Glenbrook there. Um, so that was 2014, did that year and and 2015 rolled on. At the back end of 2014, it was because of where I was working on, there was a, one deployment that was kind of like they were always scratching to find people to go on. Um, and it was to South Sudan. Um, so I spoke to one of the spoke to my bosses and they said, Hey, look, you know, next year, would you mind if I put my name down for this deployment to go? And they're like, Yeah, no dramas. Spoke to the family and said, Look, I'm going to be away anyway for most of the year, so I may as well just go overseas for six months and new experience, do do whatever. So I ended up getting on, on that deployment um, as a UN staff officer and my role over there was as the dangerous goods advisor to the mission. So basically looking at all the air assets, looking at their cargo, um, trying to de-conflict any hazardous material that was going on airframes, you know, segregation of ammunition bombs, you name it, anything that went on an airframe, I had to kind of make sure that it was compatible, it was safe to go. I mean, mind you, the it was the Rwandan Air Force that was running air assets out of there, so their level of um, air safety probably wouldn't be what, like, our level of air safety would be at. They were a little bit looser in their um, procedures and stuff, so whereas I always just took the approach of, you know, this is the safest option, your choice if you want to do that well I'm not getting on that aircraft you've been told and away you go so to speak so yeah it was uh it was it was an interesting deployment um really opened my eyes up to how the UN works high levels of bureaucracy that that's involved with any United Nations effort level of you know duplication of effort all that kind of stuff so it was a whilst the environment that wasn't a high threat physical environment Working in and around South Sudan in Juba, in one of the major cities where only a year or two before there'd been like massacres in the streets, kind of thing. There was still a heavy undercurrent of tension, and you, it was it was palpable. You could really feel it. Like you're in a highly visible white vehicle with big UN written on it. We had to literally go from where we were staying each morning at Australia House to go to Tomping, driving past one of the you know, army encampments, you know, they had old Russian tanks there and, and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of their their service personnel at, at the time, they weren't fighting, they were doing other things that, you know, intoxicated in some way, shape or form. So our biggest threat over there, apart from the environment, was getting into a motor vehicle accident. And that's the last thing you wanted to do because... And it's just basically a pile on the crowd will come in, drag people from cars and just beat the shit out of them kind of thing. So it was one of those always watching where you were going, watching who was it, you know, situational awareness had to be on point basically whilst there wasn't an overt physical threat to you. There was always a, an underlying tension that if given the opportunity, something could kick off and you didn't want to be in that vicinity if it did. So, yeah. It's something always hanging over you and that has its own effects as well as the um, actual literal physical danger of that. How does this deployment end for you? It didn't end well, uh, put it that way. As I, as I alluded to, it was environmentally a, a very tough environment to be working out of, just with the amount of disease, other things that you, you could get basically. So literally the first month I was there, I got typhoid. 
they were a former typhus, so that literally kicked the shit out of me for for about a week. Um, thankfully, I had the vaccination for it, so the the full effect I didn't get, but thank you know, I didn't want the full effect. You know, just having constantly upset stomachs, this, that, and the other. So environmentally, it was tough. At the I think about the five month mark. Remember that that particular week, it was extremely, extremely hot. Like someone had just turned the the oven switch on, and we were looking at fifty degree plus days. I was out, I think, working. I was over at UN House, which is another base there, working with the Garnon Battalion. They were about to push up north, um, working in like 40-foot connexes in the heat, just sorting through all their ammunition and, and gear and making sure that whatever they were putting on the aircraft was compatible, um, you know, no dramas. So that was on a Saturday. I, I was fairly taxed, kind of went back that day. And on the Sunday, literally it was just, Chilled out all day in the air-conditioned room, just watching movies. Uh, I think we had we'd planned like a unit PT thing with the with the Bangladeshi Marine Force unit. We're going to go play cricket with them. So we'd done that, and it was, it was a bloody hot day. Um, and so we're out there late in the afternoon, and I just started not feeling well, not well at all. Started having troubles breathing, and I missed that. It um, kind of felt like I'd torn rib cartilage. I don't know if you've ever torn rib cartilage before, but it's extremely painful, find it hard to breathe. I know someone who has, and they thought they were having a heart attack, yeah. Yeah, so there's that. Um, so basically, yeah, I kind of pain pain on the left side, like left side of my chest, thought I oh, must have torn rib cartilage, you know, swinging the bat funny or whatever. One of my team members there said, oh, I'll take you back to, to base. I said, yeah, no drama. So I really wasn't feeling well. Got back to base, had a shower, thought I'd, cool off I just couldn't stop sweating and the pain was just getting worse so I went back downstairs and said look no I'm not, not tracking well here can you take me to Japan camp where they got, I knew they had medical there so they dropped me in there and I went back to Japan camp and they literally fell out the car I was in that 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 bad away um could hardly breathe feeling nauseous all that kind of thing took me in there they started taking doing tests and all that whatever stuff they had and Put it down, they thought I might have had like a bit of a, a tummy infection that was kind of not making me feel well. And I remember, you know, Google doctor when I was back in my room looking at it, looking at the signs and symptoms, going, this this doesn't feel, points to heart-related thing. And I'm like, no, it can't be. Like, I'm a fit dude kind of thing. Like, So, trying. long story short there, at about eight, eight nine o'clock at night, I'm in the Japanese medical facility and I'm saying, oh, it's not my heart, is it? It's not my heart. And they're like, no, no, not heart. I had an ultrasound. They were looking. They were doing blood tests. And they're like, no, it's not your heart. So they gave me some aspirin or something. And, and I went back back to the Australian compound um, off base and back to my room. So that night, the pain just got, got worse and worse and worse. I basically couldn't do anything about it because by that stage, we'd hit curfew 11 o'clock at night, not not supposed to leave leave the compound and, and travel. So I was just basically, I had a heat pack, some cold water and Panadine Fort and just continually having showers, taking some Panadine Fort, drinking water, throwing up. So that was my cycle for that. I knew there was something wrong. I just knew I had a massive pain in my left side of my chest. My left neck and trap was just knotted so bad. I had a tennis ball, which I was just trying to rub in on the on the on a wall to try and loosen it. And about 5.30 that, that morning, I sort of got out of my room, went knocked on one of my mates, and I said, look, you've got to take me back to Japan camp. I'm not feeling any better. I'm not well. Uh, so they took me back there. They did some more tests, and about 9 or 10 o'clock that morning, they eventually said, yep, yeah, you're having a heart attack. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, now I know. And so give me, give me some other drugs, this, that, and the other thing. And, and then they started going through phase of trying to get me medically evacuated out of country out somewhere there because they, they had no facilities in country the un to support anything heart related that day they were working on trying to get me to uganda to go to a, a level two or level three hospital in uganda to go to um and as the day kept dragging out i knew the later the day got the less chance of me leaving that day to get evacuated was slim because there was a no-fly rule. As soon as the sun went down, no UN aircraft flew because um, chances are I'd get shot out of the sky kind of thing. So basically 
the next day after that, so that was another 24 hours had passed. Me medical evacuation finally come through, but I had to move from Japan camp to go to the, the level two Cambodian medical facility because the UN wouldn't medically evacuate me from a kilometre down the road. I had to move a kilometre up the road to get evacuated. And that's what I say, that's how the UN works. Um, so I eventually got on a, put on an aircraft and got flown to Kenya. Had a, a, a medical offsider from the Cambodian Royal 2 and another a battle buddy, one of my contingent members, had come with me as well. And I got flown from South Sudan to Kenya, got offloaded in Kenya and then got ambulance to, to the hospital there where I saw the specialist. It was a pommy guy. So I was a little bit, you know, a little bit um, boosted by that fact. But yet again, it was another 24 hours. So by the time they finally sorted me, it had been about 72 hours from my initial symptoms to me getting evacuated and finally uh, getting the, the operation I needed to open. What had actually happened is my the main left ventricle had totally closed. So it's what they call a widow maker. Basically, I, I got told in about four different languages, mate, you should be dead. You shouldn't, well, don't know how you're alive, but you, you are. It was 72 hours, a bit longer from initial symptoms to me getting to Kenya to finally getting the operation I needed to, to open that um, artery up and get blood flowing back into the heart. As it turned out, unfortunately, um, due to the, the lag in time, the damage to the, to the wall and the muscle, the heart muscle, was quite significant and still hasn't recovered. So I've you know, got permanent scar tissue and damage to like a major portion of, uh, of my heart that uh, will never recover from that. So, yeah. so the miracle has happened, Paul, that you're alive and you've had your life saved through that surgery and thank goodness for that. And it's one of those um, funny things about life, isn't it, that you just survive what should have been a routine death for many. And I guess what sort of goes across your own mind in that is that clearly therefore um going to be the end of your military career you're going to be medically downgraded or are you thinking then perhaps you need to leave what's the next steps from here at the time when it happened it was it really did knock me for a six it flattened me just the the severity of it the, the length of time to to get proper medical treatment all that and even you know i, I always say it now i will never ever have a bad word to say or complain about our medical services that we receive here in Australia. I'll never, ever bag it. If you, if you want to see the other side of that, then get medical treatment in a third or fourth world country and you can see the, the void, the, the vast chasm between the levels of service. I remember when I was in the critical care unit in Kenya, I was all plugged up with all these cords pulling out me this that and the other thing and kind of like you know having to go to the toilet so i'd unplug myself kind of stagger out of my room look up and down the hallway and all the nurses would be asleep at the stations you know this is in the critical care unit and you know tiptoe past them go to the toilet come back and i'd like oh excuse me can you come and give me a hand like plugging all my stuff back in the amount of i look like a bloody uh, heroin addict because the amount of veins that they blow and trying to get catheters iv drips in it was just phenomenal they they left a um a uh, catheter in me for about seven or eight days and it just got infected and i got to tell them to the point so that you take it out i'm going to pull it out now kind of thing so they eventually took it out and my left hand was infected with that but um yeah i, I just kind of knew it was big finally got medivac back to australia which wasn't a wasn't a bad bad thing got the flight business class all the way so it was, uh, it was okay. It was comfortable. Got back to Oz. The unit allowed me to convalesce in Townsville with my family, wife and family. And from there started the rehabilitation process of you know, going to visit all the specialists, trying to work out exactly what happened, the extent of the damage, you know, this, that and the other thing. And then just started from the end of 2015 into 2016, starting with the rehabilitation programs. I was working towards, my goal was if I pass a PFT, I'll be okay. They'll, they, they might downgrade me, but they'll keep me in. Um, and I remember one conversation with my GP on base 
and I was talking to her about it. I said, look, yeah, my rehab's going really well. I can, I can run for like 10 minutes on the treadmill. I'm getting stronger. I'm getting fitter, this, that, and the other thing. And she just looked at me and she goes, Paul, you do know, you do realise they're going to medically discharge you. And I went, no, I'm like, I, I thought we're working towards me passing my PFT and we're going to, and she's like, no, the, the specialist has come back and basically said you're too much of a risk. There's no way you can be deployed to anywhere other than like full medical support. You're going to be too much of a risk to defence. So just prepare yourself. They're going to discharge you over this. And so that was pretty much a, a kick in the balls for me. And I thought, oh, okay, here we go, trying to get my head around being medically discharged, going through the whole discharge process, this, that, and the other thing. Most of my DVA claims have been put through from previous surgeries, like both shoulders, both knees done, um, a few other injuries and that. But these latest injuries hadn't been through the DVA process. And there was, a, there was an element of not knowing what was going to happen financially if, if that was to occur. Went through the medical, medical board thing, that come back saying, yep, yeah, we're going to medically discharge you. Once again, speaking with my GP, she was really good. And I said, oh, you know, I reckon we can fight this. Oh, I'm a warrant offside. Don't need to be deployed anymore. I can still run ops desks. I can still do governance, do policy, do whatever. And like, she knew what I was like kind of thing. And she just looked at me and she said, Paul, do you really want to work for an organisation that's going to remind you on a daily basis of what you can't do. I know what you're like. Every time there's a PT session, it'll be like, fall out the people with the medical chits and that's going to be you and you won't do that, will you? And I'm like, yeah, you're right, I won't kind of thing. So it was kind of like, let's just make sure all your paperwork's done. We'll get you in the best possible position for you to transition out. And then once that kind of dawned on me, that I was like, okay, I'm going to be medically discharged. And it was kind of like, hey, let's try and work this to my my advantage kind of thing and try and try and leave on my terms, so to speak, as most people want to do. So when you get medically discharged, you'll get a response from the medical review board and you can write a reply and, and say, yeah, look, I accept your, I accept your um, decision. I said, I would be grateful if you allowed me to discharge on the 25th of April 2017, which gave me a six-month window instead of a three-month window. And I was able to use my long service leave and that, and it come back in the affirmative. So they were allowing me to do that. And as you mentioned right at the start, you know, a number of uh, significant milestones for me throughout my career have always happened on Anzac Day. I pretty much joined on Anzac Day. My first deployment was on Anzac Day. I spent Anzac days overseas on deployment. And my final day in uniform, so to speak, was going to be on Anzac Day 2017. So the last six months of my service career was spent on long service leave, just making sure I had all my paperwork in, doing whatever I could to make my transition out of uh, defence as smooth as possible. So, Paul, you come full circle back to an Anzac Day. You discharge then. You continue and go through the DVA process. You're fully retired from defence now. You're with your wife and children, you're a volunteer with the Northern Queensland legacy. What does Anzac Day mean to you now? And how do you reflect on your service as you conduct your life today? Yeah, I mean, Anzac Day, I think, takes on a little bit more importance than it used to when in uniform, because it was one of those things you'd always take it for granted. Whereas nowadays, it's kind of feel a little bit lost. So I'll go to the dawn service. And once the dawn service is done, you know, everyone will disperse where you're used to basically, if you're in uniform, you'd be going back to some mess, getting on the beers, catching up with mates and then going on to whatever was next. Um, so basically now it, it's important for me. I, I spend it with my family. Like we do the dawn service. My youngest son is, is now a member of the Navy. So it takes on added significance as well. So hopefully this year we'll be, we'll be going to Sydney to, to spend Anzac Day uh, with him. And it's a period of, of proud, proud reflection. You, you see the young guys and girls in uniform doing the march. You see a few familiar faces, wave for lay, you know, clap and you know, tell, tell the guys and girls they're doing a good job and that you're always going to be part of something. It's not necessarily the job that you miss the most. It's, it's the people that come with the job and that level of 
camaraderie and um, belonging to something a little bit bigger than, than yourself. And I guess that's why with that, I've leaned towards volunteering. As you said, with Northern Queensland Legacy, started off, off there back in 2016, just doing little things. Whereas as now I'm one of the board, I sit on the board of directors there, also the club secretary and, and uh, one of the lead coordinators for, for their main fundraiser here in Townsville every year. Well, Paul, thank you for an incredibly long period of service and thank you for all you've done for the country. And I wish you continued good health and beating the odds. And uh, I'll be thinking of you this Anzac Day as well and that significance of that date for you. And thank you for your time today. Well, thanks, Alex. I hope I didn't bore you too much, mate. <laughs> Find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join the conversation on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>